This is a Federal News Network podcast. Congress has okayed billions of dollars in security assistance for Ukraine. But one group thinks the U.S. defense industry is also well positioned to provide not just weapons, but humanitarian aid, too. The needs on the ground range from search and rescue equipment to medical supplies and satellite phones. A collection of Arizona-based industry groups is helping to identify those needs, ask for donations from contractors, and get the supplies where they need to go. Lindy Smith is chairwoman and co-founder of the West Valley Defense Alliance. She talked about the project with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Lindy, start us off by talking a bit about what you're actually asking members of the Arizona defense industry to do today for Ukraine. On behalf of the Arizona Defense Coalitions, which includes the West Valley Defense Alliance, which I head up, we are encouraging Congress to enforce, or I would say encourage the United Nations to enforce green corridors in Ukraine currently. There's a lot of civilians that are still trying to evacuate out of Ukraine, especially in eastern Ukraine, that unfortunately have no pathway to do so. There's still many green corridors that were agreed upon between Ukraine and Russia that unfortunately are seeing a lot of artillery attacking civilian bands that are coming out of that area. And it's making really hard, obviously, for people to come in and out. And so first and foremost, we are trying to help enforce the green corridors in Ukraine. Additionally, right now, we're seeing a lot of support that is still needed for civilians in Ukraine trying to evacuate. The United States has done a great job of supporting military aid to Ukraine, but we're seeing a lot of needs that are still happening within the civilians on the ground. A lot of this has to do with materials for health, you know, gauze, um, medical equipment, other things like civilian drones, satellite phones and walkie-talkies. Gas for vehicles are still in very short supply and is obviously limiting the ability for those evacuating to do so safely. And so we are reaching out to defense industry across the nation to ask if you are willing to donate, if you are willing to even sell any of these types of equipment that you please get in contact with us because we have a pipeline into Ukraine with a lot of great organizations that are doing work with the civilians on the ground. And we would love to help get those resources into the hands that really need them. Is there anything special about the defense industry in Arizona that you feel like makes your companies especially well postured to provide this sort of civilian crisis support for a situation like this? You know, I wouldn't say that we're necessarily anything super special, but just that Arizona has the benefit that we have a really strong defense community that is very united through what are known as the Arizona Defense Coalitions. These coalitions were actually started back in 2015 under Senator McCain's leadership in which he was trying to get a better pipeline of knowledge from defense industry and military installations into his office and up to the Hill in D.C. What spurred out of that initiative and conversation were the Arizona Defense Coalitions that not only did advocacy back in D.C., but also worked with each other as regional organizations to provide much-needed solutions, whether that was partnerships to crises like the COVID-19 pandemic or like what we're seeing today with the crisis in Ukraine. We need to come together as defense industry to figure out how to solve problems. And so obviously seeing the crisis as it exists today, we came to the table and actually got to hear from a citizen who had family in Ukraine and was trying to evacuate them, heard a lot of the struggles that she faced trying to evacuate her family and started to rally defense industry around the idea of how do we get these much needed resources into the hands of those that need it? And so we have a platform in Arizona already. And now we're just trying to reach nationally to say, if you're willing to support no matter where you are, whether it's Arizona, whether it's Florida, whether it's New York, please get in contact with us because this issue is obviously not regional and we're all here to help. And so if you can, we definitely encourage you to do so. 
Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners across the country might be surprised to hear that there's an aid pipeline to Ukraine that runs through Arizona, of all places. Talk a bit about the mechanics of how that pipeline actually works, your relationships, whatever relationships you have with folks on the ground in Ukraine, and what level of confidence folks should have that whatever they supply is actually going to get into the right hands. So a lot of this all started, as I mentioned, from actually an employee of Acronis SES, which is who I formerly work with. She had done a lot of work evacuating her own family. So she went over to evacuate her whole family and then worked with other organizations in Ukraine to actually evacuate over 120 people um, out through humanitarian aid. They worked with a number of different groups, everything from the Red Cross to smaller organizations and churches to actually help support these folks. And so uh, they're currently in the process of starting up a formal GoFundMe and 501c3 to aid this effort. So it will be a formal organization. The initial response was very much crisis management and very much reactionary. And now um, that they're actually getting a good amount of support, they're starting up the formal organization to make sure that people understand that it is a trusted effort and one that they can feel confident in getting those supplies to. How are Ukrainians communicating the sort of demand signals back to you? And what are some of the most acute needs right now? So a lot of what we're seeing is medical equipment needs. And so We're hearing it through actual family members and folks that are actually on the ground in Ukraine and have either um, are there themselves or family members of those that are now in the United States. A lot of what is needed, as I mentioned, is medical equipment. So whether it's gauze or gas masks, even search and rescue equipment, uh, satellite drones, body armor and protective gear, anything that can essentially ensure that they're getting out of Ukraine safely, right, is what is needed. They're not looking for tactical equipment or anything that could be used to fight. They're just looking for protective equipment. And so we're hearing that from the ground up. You know, we've heard everything at this point to just tires. Um, Tires have become an increasingly big demand because of the rough terrain and hazards that they're having to face. Um, They're not able to actually fix those um, on the road to support their transportation vehicles. And so, you know, it's across the board of these demands and, uh, you know, very just core to transportation and health. Speaking of transportation, uh, can you talk about the logistics of getting this material into Ukraine? Do you have mechanisms set up for that to just actually airlift or I don't know how you're doing it, but actually get it to the people on the ground? I would say it varies across the area, right? So in eastern Ukraine, um, much of the territories are Russian controlled. And so right now we're actually having a really hard time getting any amount of resources into Russian controlled territories. They are, you know, taking that materials and preventing it from getting to civilians on the ground there. Um, And at this point, they've actually resorted to foot traffic to get in different materials and help evacuate people out of eastern Ukraine. Otherwise, with regards to getting things primarily into Odessa, which is where my colleague is closely connected, they're not seeing a lot of conflict getting resources into that area. So basically, we get into those areas of Ukraine that are still Ukrainian controlled and relatively safe and free of conflict. And then it's a lot of smaller transportation vehicles, um, sometimes even to the point of foot that are then getting it further into eastern Ukraine. So anyone within the sound of our voices who does feel like they're in a position to help, how can they get in touch with you? So would recommend you to reach out to myself as part of the West Valley Defense Alliance. We're on LinkedIn and posting regularly about the efforts that we're doing. So I would encourage you to take a look at us there. My contact information 
I'm happy to share um, and have posted via this podcast um, or radio. And so I just encourage you to get in touch with me. I will put you directly in contact with the organizations that are doing the work in Ukraine so that you can see they are trusted and secure. We are merely a, a vocal podium, right, to get people in contact with those that are doing the real work. So I encourage you to, to get in contact with me and then I can make sure you're getting in touch with the right people in Ukraine. Lindy Smith, chairwoman and co-founder of the West Valley Defense Alliance, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted 
they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do, where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult, young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.